You are listening to the Intentionally International Podcast. I am the Reverend Matthew Lafferty. And I am the Reverend Anitra Kitts. We are two Americans living in Europe and involved with English-speaking congregations in non-English-speaking countries. This is the second of three episodes in our series with the Reverend David B. Smith. David is an ordained minister of Word and Sacrament in the Presbyterian Church USA. He is currently completing a Master of Arts degree in Ecumenical Studies at the University of Bonn. And as part of his graduate studies, David conducted a survey of English-speaking congregations in Europe and in Asia on their approaches, practices, and beliefs with children and youth ministries. David brings ministry experience with children and youth from other assignments prior to his relocation to Bonn, Germany. I am the Reverend Anitra Kitts. I am an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA, and I am a freelance writer and occasional preacher in Munich, Germany. And I am the Reverend Matthew Lafferty. I'm an ordained pastor in the United Methodist Church. I currently serve as the director of the Methodist Ecumenical Office Rome and the Methodist representative to the Holy See. Prior to my assignment to Rome, I served nearly a decade in English-speaking international congregations in Europe. We think there is something interesting going on in these English-speaking international congregations, and we want to share what we've learned with you. One of the things I'd be interested in hearing more around is also in in relation to these questions around resources and how much maybe resources dictate these questions or lack of resources that are available for Christian education, for youth formation, for discipleship, for young people. From my experience in in the congregations, the international congregations that I've served, both in Moscow here and, and in Vienna, is that there's a desire to try to find resources from English-speaking publishers that are brought in from sometimes at great expense to be used in our setting. And then we open them up and start looking at them and say, wow, these are, um, our children look at these and have no idea what these pictures are. They're so specific to a national or cultural context that doesn't translate to where we are in our international congregation, or they sometimes seem to be addressing um, denominational priorities that even though in my current congregation, it's a denominational church, some of those denominational priorities are not at all, there's no awareness in our congregation either. And so, um, so maybe you can talk more about how resources also plays into this question. And, and, and if there was something that you learned about, resources and access to resources from from the survey? Certainly. I think that the the question you raise is is perhaps um, (laughs) the most practical and uh, the most profound because uh, you you point out that, you know, one of the biggest problems in doing Christian education and faith formation in these contexts is just accessing the resources to do that. And in the few international congregations where a professional youth ministry or children's ministry staff is a possibility, that looks differently than it might in a a volunteer-based ministry. And I think, just to give you some numbers before I get into how people are addressing this, one of the things, it's you have to be careful when speaking of percentages with such a small sample size, but I will do it with this one. 60% of the people who responded said that they still use what we might call in the U.S. a Sunday school model, sort of a classical classroom model approach to 
children and youth ministry. And, and I'm not saying that to be uh, pejorative at all. I think it's interesting, though, because as folks who are sort of engaging in critical reflection on what youth ministry looks like or could look like in the future are certainly going away from that model for the most part, it's interesting to see that in 60% of the congregations who responded to this survey, their ministry is still very much identified as classroom-based um, Sunday school model as we might imagine it. And, and I'm, I'm not picking on international churches with that because I think that might be true more broadly of, uh, of churches in general. But it's, it's, it's instructive because it has to do with this question of how do you get resources? If you are unable to access all these fancy new books telling you about new models of youth ministry, if you do not have access to a staff person who has been shaped uh, in those approaches, then you are going to say, well, we don't know exactly what all those fancy things are, but we can do this and we can do it relatively well. <laughs> you know, this curriculum may be 20 years old and may have pictures in it, as you said, that have nothing to do with what we're experiencing that looks sort of like uh, you know, it's things from the 1950s with the paintings and the books and all. Of course, we, we've heard about transient versus non-transient populations in, in congregations, which are realities, right? There are people coming and going and people who are staying. And in some communities, it's a broader, larger group of one than the other, and sometimes it's mixed and things. We've talked about access to resources, the, the staff and volunteering. Um, we've talked about um, kind of orientation around who's leading the ministry and their own experience, especially if it's volunteer driven. And I'm also now curious to, to, to hear about if you've done any work around who's actually publishing the material and if that has an impact on what people are using and how good do they think it is and all the stuff that, re that relates to choosing a publisher or a company or ministry that's producing these resources for children and youth ministry? Yes, certainly. So one of the things we asked um, in the survey uh, had to do with the question of where, where are you getting your materials, uh, your, your curriculums, and even beyond curriculums, broader resources. And um, we gave several options and then also left uh, possibilities to get specific later on. So some of the options might be a denominational curriculum. You know, if, if your church is part of a, a Methodist, uh, um, as yours is in Vienna, Matthew, um, part of the Methodist World Mission, then possibly you would have access to sort of Methodist publications. Other congregations might as well from their denominational backgrounds. Then, you know, you have sort of non-denominational publishing houses, individual uh, thinkers or uh, authors who have created their own, uh, and so on. All these options exist in pretty much any context. One of the, the, the results, though, point us to the fact that most people, and this is not that surprising, gravitate toward non-denominational resources for, that are published by a publishing house that is not necessarily associated with a denominational body. And, but secondary to that, when asked, how do you use those materials? Almost everyone said, and this is not really surprising either, that it's a cut and paste approach. We use what works, we ignore what doesn't. 
And what I heard fairly strongly amidst all the diversity of, you know, 30 some different uh, curriculums, some of which I had never heard of, and I consider myself pretty engaged in this, amidst all of that diversity, there didn't seem to be any sense that we found a curriculum that is that works for us that we don't have to work with significantly and that brings into uh, brings us back to the point with the leadership question that is a problem that isn't that difficult to solve if you have someone professionally designated to to engage in this kind of ministry because uh, as a professional youth minister myself i can tell you no curriculum is good enough <laughs> i change them all but uh, when you're working in contexts where that's not a possibility, where the ministry is primarily volunteer-driven, and where access to, to multiple materials is limited, where you might say, okay, I can't, I have five curriculums I'd love to piece together, but I can't buy them all because that'd be $800 in shipping, and that's, you know, three-fourths of my budget, <laughs> you know? Uh, so it's a very practical question, but it has a theological impact because, Access to resources shapes our ability to engage in the uh, in youth ministry and children's ministry as well. I think that you've raised a really interesting question. I mean, there's an interesting question here. Is not only do you have access to resources, but many English-speaking congregations are transient in their leadership. Again, going back into a pre-corona model where people are transferring in and out, and so. You have to, um, you might develop your volunteer base and they're not, there's no guarantees they're going to be here a year from now. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if that shows up in any of your research or what your thoughts on that are. So that was not a specific target of the, the project, but it did show up in the responses. So the, the transient nature of populations coming into um, to international churches is sort of a well-known factor that, you know, you have various groups in a congregation. One might be your folks who are from the context or folks who have come there and decided to settle. And then others might be folks who are sort of coming through very quickly. Um, like folks, uh, prime examples of this would be international students, um, you know, folks who are on temporary assignment for business or military service or some other factor. And so that is a reality that's known sort of in international church work. Uh, I, I'm sure that you all are aware of that as well. But what's often not thought about is how does that impact the volunteering question, especially in youth ministries, even highly staffed youth ministries, by the way, rely on volunteer support. So that that raises two primary questions. One, what is the makeup of your volunteer cohort? If your volunteer cohort is by necessity primarily people who are in that the group of folks who are going to be around for the long term, then that impacts the way you approach ministry practice. And two, it often means that the folks who are often really serving as core volunteers are the ones who are here longer, who are in con- context longer. And sometimes that leads to a lack of ability to address the needs of the more transient uh, populations. So, for example, the United States, the, one of the big uh, raves in youth ministry right now is how do you have sort of a scope and sequence? That's not new, but it's, you know, fo- folks are really emphasizing this. So how do you say, okay, I, what do I want youth to know, feel, and do in their four years in our youth ministry? 
Well, that's going to look very different in an international church for whom people may only be there for six months at a time. Another question that might be raised by this transient discussion is, what does confirmation look like in congregations where confirmation is a thing? How how can you have a two-year confirmation process like some churches do when you might only have people for six months? (laughs) So those are, I think, important questions that you raise. If you're pulling curriculum out of publishing houses, though in English you're probably pulling out of an American or um, United Kingdom or Commonwealth source, which means you're also pulling out of a Northern Hemisphere view of how to behave in a classroom as a teacher and how to behave in a classroom as a student. And one of the things I've observed is, especially if you're working, you might be pulling in students from African cultures or Asian cultures or European cultures, and and all of them have a different uh, set of how to behave in a group of adults or how to behave in a classroom kind of a standard. And did anything come out um, both in terms of like acknowledging this potential mashup or ideas of how to deal with that? Mm. Well, so first I would say, I think you're exactly right. Most of the resources um, did come from Northwestern contexts for the most part, we could say. And, and that does have an impact on the approach uh, that, is, that is sort of embodied. I suspect, and this is just a hypothesis, that there is at least some level of reflection regarding this issue because it ha- it, one cannot be engaged in a classroom without realizing the challenge that it is posed. However, the survey did not really get into that uh, point. Uh, one thing I will say, though, that is significant uh, in sort of the background research and intercultural work in general um, has to do with what it means to lead small groups, right? So in churches that are are moving towards small group models or who are at the very least trying to work within the Sunday school structure to to allow for more participation of young people, that was certainly a something that came out in the survey, that there was a desire to help young people to take the biblical story on in their own life and to actually participate in the life of ministry. So you have those ideas, and that's great. But the way you approach that and the way your curriculum suggests that you ought to approach that is culturally based and certainly will be, at the very least, have to be adapted depending on context. But if not adapted and if not done so in a sensitive way, it could very easily become uh, destructive to conversation instead of constructive. I mean, even something as simple as, you know, a curriculum that says, um, okay, so now we're going to go around the room and everyone is going to speak. What in the world might that mean when you have, you know, folks who are from a culture that are sort of low uh, power distance, who can just jump right in there, no, no difficulties, sitting beside folks from um, from a high power distance culture where you would never, uh, <laughs> you know, jump in, in in that way. And then you have the additional question of, okay, well, then how do we do this? <laughs> how do we make sure everybody can talk um, and, and, and can engage in a way that that honors uh, their their uh, experience of faith and their cultural experience?
There is another episode with David in our three-part series on children and youth ministry in English-speaking congregations in non-English-speaking countries. Thank you for listening to the Intentionally International podcast. If you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, we would invite you to do so now. Give us a five-star rating, which helps others find this podcast. Visit our blog online at iipodcast.org. I'm the Reverend Anitra Kitts, and with the Reverend Matthew Lafferty, we create this podcast.